Hi, and welcome to Forgotten Film Club. We're your hosts, Sarah, Hallie, and John. This is our mini episode on setting as a character. We're doing things a little differently this time. We have all watched different movies and we are sharing them with each other now in five minutes or less. So that's new for us too. And Hallie's going to kick us off. Okay, so I'm going to kick us off with, I think, not a forgotten thing. It is just, this was one of the first things that came into mind. And it's My Best Friend's Wedding, starring Julia Roberts and Dermot Mulroney. When they're supposed to be 27 nearing 28, which, again, back in the day felt, when this came out in 97, felt very much like they were full-fledged adults. And now I'm older. I won't say how much. So I'm just going to read what I have. I said, Chicago, the most photogenic city in America. Our first dive into Chicago is what is obviously supposed to be Charlie Trotter's in Lincoln Park, the exclusive restaurant of bully chef Charlie Trotter. Really, this is actually true. He was voted one of the meanest people in Chicago at the time in 1997. Also with um, uh, Michael Jordan. They were like the two top meanest people in Chicago at the time. I don't know why. But anyway. Um, so we go into Charlie Trotter, something that's supposed to be Charlie Trotter's. Um, you know, he's bossing his staff around in preparation to serve Julia Roberts, Julianne, who's a successful um, food critic at the impressive age of 27. Um, and what's really weird, though, this is what's odd, and you can't question it too much, is that we're supposed to be in New York. But we're weird. Like, in the beginning, she lives in New York. And we're supposed to be in New York, but we're at Charlie Trotter's. And I thought about this as I was rewatching it. And I said, we're not in Chicago yet, but I think the movie's supposed to make us fall in love with Chicago. So I'll give it a pass. So anyone who saw this probably looked up who the chef was and saw it was Trotters of Charlie Trotters in the exclusive Brownstone in Lincoln Park in its heyday in Chicago in 97. Um, and I bet he made even more people cry in his kitchen after that. So it's a good thing. Um, and I think it's also hard to do a movie based in Chicago without some mention of the food scene, you know, albeit it's a five star scene, but Trotter was an icon back then. So I think it's a great way to sort of wet your palate for a fun visit to Chicago. Okay, so then the next moment we have in Chicago is the Drake Hotel, which is iconic. That's where Michael is staying, Dermot Mulroney, which is weird because he's engaged to a woman who lives in Chicago. So why isn't he staying with her? And they're getting married in four days. Okay. But the Drake Hotel is where he breaks the news of his engagement to this younger woman, Cameron Diaz. And the hotel comes up a few times in the movie. And each time is sort of the home base for Julianne. You know, she drinks the whole mini bar in Rage of Jealousy. And we see a young Paul Giamatti as a hotel employee who coaxes Julianne from her guilt later in the movie. Um, and it's a place where we see a really moving piece of life advice from um, the other character in the movie, whose name I'm now completely blanking on. Who can help me? Oh my God. Okay, this is not his name, but I wanted to say Rudolph. No, That's but not it. Um, Rupert Everett, thank you. I knew that would do it. Rupert Everett, okay, thank you. From Rupert Everett. So we see like a lot of moving things in this hotel. And again, again, another, I feel like a lot of this movie was, let's go just with like the top places in Chicago we can see. Okay, great. So we have the Drake um, and we see it also in the beginning um, with the skyline coming south on Lakeshore Drive with crazy Cameron Diaz driving. So we see a little bit of that. 
Okay, my favorite part of Chicago in this whole movie is the airport skyline. So the, the O'Hare, the skyline of Chicago from O'Hare, when you're coming into Chicago, um, when you're coming in east from the East Coast, you see this incredible view of Michigan Ave, of Lake Michigan and the Chicago skyline and the Hancock building. And I love that it's in the beginning of my best friend's wedding. Okay, and then we have the romantic, awkward moment at O'Hare where Julianne meets Kimmy for the first time. And yes, it romanticizes O'Hare, but I'm also a sucker for a good romantic gesture at an airport, particularly pre-9-11 when you could have free reign at the airport and it was a beautiful thing. We also get the elegant shops of Michigan Avenue where Cameron Diaz weirdly asked Julianne to be her maid of honor. It's not the most iconic Chicago, but it's good to showcase the shopping. Okay, maybe, I don't know. Okay, then we have the Chicago River Cruise. We fast forward to the two main characters on a river cruise trying to figure out if there's anything there between them to pursue romantically. And I really think the Chicago River um, is one of the most beautiful parts of the city. It's, I didn't realize how romantic it was actually until I saw the movie as a kid. Um, but it, the way the light reflects off the river and the glass of the skyscrapers and the mix of the ages on the deck. It's a great way to see Chicago and it's the perfect thing to do in the summer in that city. Okay, and then one of the coolest parts of the movie is Union Station. You never thought you'd think Union Station was a cool place to be, but um, when Julianne steals the bread truck and chases Michael into the city and into Union Station, Joel Maroney stays fixed to those beautiful wooden benches and he broods over losing Cameron Diaz. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, I think, ode to how many different things you can see in that city. So it's a great setting as character. We love My Best Friend's Wedding and we love Chicago. Um, I have a quick question because I haven't seen this movie in at least 10 years. Okay, please go. So Dermot Mulroney does not inform julia roberts that he's getting married until four days before the wedding truly so he literally goes we're getting married this sunday so they haven't they haven't spoken in a while these two characters i guess dated when they were in their early 20s knew each other for a long time and didn't work out and they had this pact that they were going to get married if they hadn't met anybody by 28 he tells her on the phone i'm getting married this sunday to this 20 year old woman i met was it a shotgun wedding? No, and it's not even a shotgun wedding. He's just this cool, she's just this woman and her dad owns, oh, there's also Comiskey Park. I didn't mention that. But anyway, so yes, she, they're having like some weird whirlwind wedding where they're getting married very quickly. Yeah. Wow. You know, Cameron Diaz is the only likable character in this movie in hindsight. It truly, oh, really? In hindsight, you kind of go, oh, she's kind of the one who doesn't deserve these people. It's like you're worried for her a little bit. Like, get out of there, girl. Go back to college. He's he he's borderline verbally abusive. Oh, and like a little bit bizarre. And she's also isn't going to be finishing college, which makes me sad. That was the other part of the movie that I didn't remember. She was in she's in school to be an architect. What the fuck? So she's an architect in training and she and she jumped ship for an MRS degree? She's an architect in training and she decides she's 20. So what is that? A sophomore? Jun- sophomore? Sophomore, junior? I don't know. Yeah. When's her birthday? She's 
and she decides to leave for this guy who's a sports writer, Dermot Mulroney. Um, I think it just shows Chicago. I think Chicago is one of the most photogenic cities to film in for movies. I just think it's beautiful. The water, I think, makes it look great. You have the river and you have the lake. And it's just a great place to be in love. Sorry. I know that's cheesy, but it's a great place to be in love. And I think a movie surrounding marriage and love and weddings, it's fun. Chicago is a great backdrop for it. So that's mine, y'all. I'm excited to hear the two other ones. So go watch My Best Friend's Wedding. It's on Netflix. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of places where you can stream the things we're talking about, you can stream mine on Tubi or Pluto for free with ads. Only five minutes to talk about one of the most iconic movies of all time and the first time Nicolas Cage was credited as Nicolas Cage. Okay, I'll do my best. (laughs) uninitiated valley girls in 1983 like totally new wave take on cross-cultural love if cross-cultural means a punk from hollywood and a prep from valley high they meet on neutral turf the beach randy nick cage and julie deborah freeman who you might remember from real genius lock eyes across the sand a friend of randy's then overhears a friend of julie's talking about a party later that night which Randy and his friend crash. All the preps think these two guys are weird, but the vibe between Julie and Randy is still strong. As they lock eyes once again, this time across the living room to the payola's eyes of a stranger. Just a quick aside, this movie could work equally as well if the theme of this episode was soundtrack as a character. And speaking of soundtrack, Josie Cotton, known for her hits, He Could Be the One and Johnny Are You Queer, had this to say about the movie in which she cameos. I used to think it was a girl's movie, and then I realized it was a guy's movie because it was really about guys being able to be individuals and sensitive and creative and be able to actually have real feelings. A lot of guys have come up to me and said, I broke into manhood during that movie. Like how to be a sensitive guy, not a jock, not a bully, but somebody cool. Nicolas Cage did a great job portraying that character. To Josie's point, the movie is largely Julie's movie. She's the focal point of most of the photography. Only once do we see Randy in Hollywood without her, but we see Julie plenty of times in Sherman Oaks having fun with her friends, coming of age under the loose supervision of her aging hippie parents, and struggling with her really annoying ex who is out to sabotage her relationship with Randy by poisoning her friends against him. Though he doesn't have to work very hard, because they're already pretty judgy of Randy and anyone outside of the Valley in general. In fact, it's with her best friend, Stacy, who makes Julie promise no one will ever find out that Julie feels safe enough to leave the party with Randy and his friend and go for a drive from the Valley to Sunset Strip. Randy calls this the real world, but of course, it's got its own rules, just like the Valley. But Hollywood's rules are faded glamour, so it's way more of a vibe than yuppie suburbia. And we're treated to a lot of tracking shots interspersed with just enough jump cuts to confuse you if you're at all familiar with the terrain. They drive down Hollywood Boulevard past Grauman's Chinese Theater, then in its man's Chinese Theater phase, which is playing Heidi's song and an officer and a gentleman. Then they pass the Seven Seas Nightclub, which was a tiki bar in its heyday, but in the early 80s, it was past its prime as a nightclub. And El Capitan Movie Theater, before we cut to sunset with the view of the Rainbow Bar and Grill, the Roxy, a marquee displaying Oliver Hardy and Wizard of Oz 1925, Sabu and Jungle Book, Rocky Horror, The Grand Hotel, and Dinner at Eight. 
But don't look too closely because we do appear to be moving both west and east at the same time, because then we're back at the intersection of Las Palmas and either Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard. Who the hell knows? I don't know. Maybe he just wanted to cruise around a bit. A lot of this montage is him yelling out of his car to friends while Julie's BFF freaks out in the back seat. I became so obsessed with whether or not this route was plausible that I've actually mapped it out and will include it in the show notes for those who want to recreate the drive. By the way, this is an 84-minute drive without traffic, so I guess you have to do it at like 3 o'clock in the morning if you want to be efficient with your time. Then we wind up at the Central, which is now the Viper Room. The marquee suggests a young Katie Seagal, yes, that Katie Seagal, will be playing, but instead we're treated to a song by the Plimsolls, A Million Miles Away, a proverbial gap that Randy and Julie close with a makeout while Stacy balances delicately on some paper napkins in the adjacent seat since everything in the club is a little grimy. And honestly, it probably is, but that doesn't mean it's not hot, much like Ramsey himself. The end. Yay. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, so I really needed like a visual because LA in the 80s is just its own thing. And so I highly recommend our listeners, if they haven't seen the movie yet, just Google image shit and you're going to see the best hair ever to be on a human ever on Nicolas Cage. And for the benefit of, of Hallie and John, let me just real quick uh, pop this share link <laughs> into the chat so you can you can see this insane route. It was how many minutes without traffic? 84. <laughs> because not only is he coming from the valley, then he's also kind of, if you like follow the intersections, kind of going like, whoop, whoop. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, I can totally believe an 18-year-old was just cruising around like that, but it's also a little bit funny. Wow, going from Chicago to Los Angeles is really a great jump, though, because they they couldn't be more different to me. I've I've still never been to, I mean, I grew up around LA, but I've never been to Chicago still outside of, like, the airport. It's it... Fly into O'Hare. You'll have the my best friend's wedding view if you do. Depending on where you're sitting in the airplane, obviously. Of course, of course. You said that you popped me into the chat. I was going to, but then I can't find the link. What the hell? I sent it to myself. Oh, I found it. I found it. Okay, hold on. Copy link. Okay. All right. So this is a real address. Um, twenty. Wait, that's more numbers than I thought. Uh, two thirty-seven twenty-seven Posey Lane, in what is now West Hills but I think was Canoga Park in 1983 is where they filmed the party scene. So that is the real starting address. If you want to recreate this shit, you can start over there <laughs> and make your way to the Viper room very slowly and with not, some turning around your elbow. Really, not to really bring down the mood, but um, isn't the Viper room where um, um River Phoenix died. I, yeah, I remember passing by the Viper Room a bunch when growing up before real uh, before completely realizing what it is. It's just it's and I, I remember it being like a lot like very small in person. But it I is. It is small. Me. Yeah. Is it really? There's a movie called Molly's Game that has it. It they it is the Viper Room, but they call it the Cobra Lounge in the movie. But it's supposed to be the Viper Room. Ah, yeah, that was a popular. I mean, that must have been like a really there's a lot of famous people in such a small area that night. Um, Joaquin Phoenix was there. Johnny Depp was there. 
Did, did so, Johnny Depp own it at the time? He yeah. was a part owner. It's really like a hole in the wall. It is surprisingly small. Oh, it is. It's like, it looks like a dive. It is definitely a dive. Ah. It's sort of this weird little place. Yay. Oh, wow. Okay, I want to see this movie. It's so good. Tell me when you watch it. <laughs> okay, John, you're up. So Lost in Translation is a 2003 film directed by Sofia Coppola. Um, and it masterfully utilizes its setting Tokyo as a character in the story. The film opens with shots of Tokyo, a vibrant and bustling metropolis, establishing the city as a key character in the narrative. A sprawling urban landscape with its neon lights, crowded streets, and unfamiliar cultural nuances provides a vivid backdrop for the story. Um, we are introduced to the main character, Bob Harris, played by Bill Murray. Um, and Bob, you know, he entered like he, the way that the movie begins is he's literally like going through a tunnel and, you know, his his chauffeured car, um, you know, he's woken up. He's woken up from kind of like a sleep by the bright lights of Tokyo um, and him just kind of being like, I, I don't know it, of, if awe is the right word, but more like just kind of caught off guard and curious, you know, like Alice being plopped into Wonderland is what it feels like. And it and it really is, you know, like we never really move away from Tokyo in, in, in this. It's kind of like Tokyo is just kind of like its own neon snow globe. We're kind of contained in this area until the end of the movie. Um. So, um. Yep. His character Bob is a middle-aged American movie star who has come to Tokyo to shoot a whiskey commercial. He is disoriented and disconnected from his surroundings, struggling with the language barrier and the fast-paced, unfamiliar environment. Um, also staying in the hotel with him is Charlotte, who is a play by Scarlett Johansson, is a young woman accompanying her husband, John, played by Giovanni Ribisi, um, who is a celebrity photographer on a business trip. Like Bob, she finds herself adrift in this foreign city, seeking a sense of purpose and connection. As Bob and Charlotte navigate the bustling streets of Tokyo, the city's energy and sensory overload serve as a constant reminder of their displacement. The juxtaposition of their internal struggles with the external chaos of Tokyo highlights the idea of being lost in a foreign land. Bob and Charlotte's chance encounter in the hotel's elevator marks the beginning of their unconventional friendship. They strike up a conversation and find solace in each other's company. Their interactions are marked by genuine connection as they share moments of laughter and introspection. And, you know, and they really do, they really do bond. Um, over how displaced they feel in Tokyo, and neither of them can speak the language very well, um, and so it's it's kind of uh, them them being able to you know first see each other in the elevator, and then meet, and then they meet again in the in the hotel's karaoke lounge. Um, it's kind of a a respite from just you know being in the place where they don't understand what anybody's saying, and just being confused and tossed around all day. Um, throughout the film. Tokyo's cultural dissonance amplifies the character's sense of isolation and longing. The city becomes a mirror for their internal conflicts, reflecting their feelings of alienation and the search for meaning in their lives. As Bob and Charlotte spend more time together, they embark on adventures throughout Tokyo's vibrant nightlife from karaoke bars to arcades. The city's eclectic and dynamic spaces provide a backdrop for their enveloping relationship. The iconic Park Hyatt Hotel um, which I really do want to stay in one day, uh, where much of the film is set becomes a sanctuary for their encounters, offering a contrast to the to the chaos outside, kind of kind of a cocoon. 
that they can retreat back to after after a day's chaos. Um, let's see. As their time together comes to an end, Bob and Charlotte share a poignant and intimate farewell. Their unspoken affection for each other is palpable, yet they acknowledge the complexity of the complexities of their situation and the likelihood of a romantic relationship, which is hinted at throughout the movie. In the final moments of the film, Bob whispers something into Charlotte's ear, a private moment left unheard by the audience. This intimate exchange encapsulates the depth of their connection and the profound impact they have had on each other. And the film concludes with Bob leaving the city um, pretty much the same way that he came. Excellent directing by Nick Cage's cousin, Sophia. <laughs> yes. That's Nick Cage's cousin? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm Yep. So his real name is Nicholas Coppola, and he was credited as such in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but he felt like um, everyone was calling out his last name a little bit too much for his liking, so he decided to be Nicholas Cage instead. And he asked the director of Valley Girl, like not to reveal his his true last name. Good for him. And yeah, the, the this one this one entire little family. Um, I'm not Atlanta little family, but yeah, Sophia Coppola and then Jason Schwartzman and Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Well, I re I remember seeing Lost in Translation when it came out and wanting so bad to go to Tokyo. It it, it I think it really it. It, I think it was the perfect, it sounded like the perfect backdrop for a city that's as wacky and almost otherworldly, where that's what I've heard about Tokyo is that you go and you just are, you are dropped into a city center of very different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the movies where I went in completely blind. I was, my God, I was 13 when this came out. And I just remember it's my sister and dad. So I'm like, yeah, let's go watch this film, this new Bill Murray movie. It's like awesome, Ghostbusters. <laughs> and and I yeah, and I was just like completely transported. And I think this is one of the movies that made me realize that I love movies. It's just completely transporting. And I when I tried to tell my other when I tried to tell my friends about it later on, you know, a bunch of 13-year-old boys. Um, you know, it, it was so hard to explain. It's like what happens in it? It's like I don't know. Like you just have to watch it. It's. I think this is the first time I've, I've ever had a movie where it was just vibes. It was mostly just vibes um, with not too much of a storyline, which I'm a fan of. I don't need. I don't need a like. I don't need a, a, a like an A to Z storyline in my movies. Like it's like Sofia Coppola. Yeah, I just love her vibing movies pretty much. And I remember, I think this was the first Oscars I watched where I was like where I was like really pushing for a movie and pushing for for like a performance and yeah this is a year that yeah this is a big year this is a year that Bill Murray this is a person only Oscar nomination along with Johnny Depp for Pirates of the Caribbean and they both lost to Sean Penn for Mystic River Ooh, that was a great movie wow, though a, oh that was yeah a great movie. yeah modern movie that has both vibes and a lot of plot I just saw Anatomy of a Fall last week and holy shit i want to go back like i want to see it again it's like two and a half hours long but i loved being in that space even though it's a really dark plot i just wanted to hang out with them in this snowy french cabin 
I haven't heard much about this. Oh, it's so good. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and it's truly like a character study on many, many different levels. Yeah, it's, it keeps on popping up on my Letterboxd. Like everyone that I follow on Letterboxd is, they're all, they're all watching this movie right now. So yeah, it's on, it's on my watch list. But another thing about Lost in Translation too, is I was also thinking like Jerry, I was talking to my husband Jerry about this, of course. And he says like, are you sure that Lost in Translation uses its character? Like, couldn't this just take place in any bustling city where they don't speak English? And I, and I was thinking like, like I, I think his, like historically and pop culturally, it has to be in Tokyo um, just because of the relationship between Hollywood and Tokyo within the last few decades, especially when it comes to our fading movie stars, um, because we do have a pretty long lineage of fading movie stars going to Japan to film commercials like Bill Murray does in Lost in Translation. That's like a, it's a thing. It's an industry. Um, you've got um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, you um, you've got Tommy Lee Jones. Um, you have Audrey Hepburn. Um, this was um, in the seventies selling wigs. Joey on that of, one episode of Friends. Yes, Joey with the with the lipstick with the yep. It's a thing. It's a joke. And and also it's also been very you know very heavily speculated. Um, it's Lost in Translation is kind of semi is semi autobiographical. Because, I did not know that. Yeah, because Sophia, it's always been rumored, you know, Sofia Coppola um, stayed in um, stayed in Japan, stayed in Tokyo at around the same time that Harrison Ford was filming his Japanese beer commercials. Oh, my. Wow, and that were, really, okay, this is good to know. And, and, Anna Ferris plays a blonde, vapid movie star that Scarlett Johansson's husband is photographing. And at the same and and Cameron Diaz was also at, was also around at the at the time and Sofia in real life with Sofia Coppola and Harrison Ford. But Cameron Diaz is not vapid. No, don't give me that blank stare. I love her. <laughs> we have a different definition of that. Also, who knew that we were going to mention Cameron Diaz <laughs> twice in one episode? Vapid people don't age naturally. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> that should be. I don't know why I call her vapid. I don't know. It depends. Again, it it depends on. I get it though from a character standpoint. I mean, maybe she. Who knows? Like it was a jumping off place. If right. this is what it was based on, yeah. That hmm. kind of like with um Home for the Holidays, where or, or the yeah the author of Home for the Holidays kind of claimed to her family like this is just a jumping off point. This isn't really you guys. Yeah. That was still awkward. But I guess um, but I guess also like um, G, um the character John, which is Scarlett Johansson's husband, is also um kind of supposed to be like Spike Jones. Anyway, so yeah, I feel like that's another that's another reason why the movie's plot is is kind of inseparable from its location. Oh yeah, you don't. Jerry's just wrong on that one. Sorry, Jerry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I think Tokyo is the perfect spot for that movie, and it, it needs to be in a a place like that. That's just again, there's so much stimulus in a city like that too. That is very not American. 
in a great way, in a way that is like so just different. Yeah, it's it's cool because it's like the characters are so conf- are are so you know confounded by it, and it look and everything looks so confusing and is confusing, um, but it still makes you want to go visit it. It's like oh, you're still just very curious, and I and I always love um because I'm a big Sofia Coppola fan. Like my other, this is one of my favorite movies, and one of my other favorite movies also happens happens to be the 2006 uh, Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst. Um, and Sofia Coppola and, and both the soundtracks for this and Marie Antoinette, there's always a track towards the beginning of the soundtrack where it's just like, it's just noises of whatever, of whatever place she's filming. And hmm. so there's like this, you know, this track on the Lost in Translation soundtrack where it's just like, just like a cacophony of like all these different Tokyo sounds, like a city, like, you know, the, of the city and you know, bits of music and, and dialogue that you don't understand. And then in Marie, Marie Antoinette, she does the same thing with like Versailles and bells ringing and horses galloping. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's a cool little, it's a, I think it's a cool little thing that she does. She really wants you to be transported to wherever. This leads me to believe we need to do a follow-up mini episode with soundtrack as a character in which I will be reprising uh-huh. Valley Girl. And John, okay, you can I'm do so Marie I might have to read Prize, My Best Friend's Wedding, because their soundtrack is banging. I mean, honestly, I might have to do Batman Forever. Oh, <gasps> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So stay tuned, everybody, for soundtrack as character. <laughs> that might be a little bit of a stretch, but like, I still like it. <laughs> I love it. I think it's a good idea. That's it for Forgotten Film Club. Join us later this month for a very special holiday episode, Serendipity from 2001, starring John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale. Goodbye.